Welcome to this edition of 21 Wire Live. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. Thank you so much for joining us for this live stream. Uh, we've got a very special guest uh, for you today. Uh, we're going to be joined by him in a minute, but I just want to remind everybody we're broadcasting live on YouTube, uh, also on our Facebook page, 21stCenturyWire.com, and also on Periscope uh, via Twitter on our Twitter account, which is uh, 21st Century Wire Twitter. Uh, you can also watch it on at 21 Wire. Uh, on Twitter as well. Now, our next guest, a uh, very special guest, is the director of the uh, Ron Paul Institute. Uh, he's going to be talking to us about the current political uh, upheaval, there's no other way to describe it, uh, in America right now. And he's uh, joining me on the live link, and his name is Daniel McAdams. Hello, Daniel. Hey, Patrick. How are you? It's uh, I'm great. I'm great. It's great to see you. Uh, and also, uh, well, we've got a lot to talk about today. Uh, but uh, just before we start, for, for those people who aren't familiar with you, for, familiar with what you, you do and the organization that you work for, uh, if you give us a, a little bit of a, a brief uh, synopsis about yourself and, and the work you're doing at uh, the Ron Paul Institute. Okay, sure. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I've been the executive director of the Ron Paul Institute since we started in 2013. I'm also the co-host of the daily Ron Paul Liberty Report, which uh, is still on YouTube as of today, as of last time I checked. Uh, but the daily news and analysis program, you know, similar to, to yours in perspective and, and, and style. So uh, before that, I worked for Dr. Paul on Capitol Hill in his congressional office for, I think, 12 years or something like this. So I've uh, been with Dr. Paul for a while. So we'll, we'll get straight into it. And there's, there's a lot to unpack, uh, really, since especially since what's uh, happened on, on January 6th, uh, the, the protests stroke riots uh, on Capitol Hill. And I know you've you've spent uh, quite a few years of your life um, either covering or working on Capitol Hill uh, with Congressman Ron Paul. Um, just your what what were your first uh, thoughts and reactions uh, with seeing that? I mean, you've seen protests in D.C. before, um, but you know there was a lot of strange things going on that day with the D.C. Capitol Police. Uh, there's also a huge political uh, cloud uh, over everything really since the election uh, to do with the. Uh, contesting the challenging of the election uh, and the certification, which was going on that day. Um, you know, how, how do you think uh, this unfolded? Do you think this was in, in any way uh, misconstrued by the media, the sort of the timeline of events, um, you're from, just speaking from your, your, your understanding of what goes on in D.C.? No, Patrick, they wouldn't do that, would they? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it becomes sort of an epistemological question, right? It seems like everything is a psyop, like literally everything in our lives is a psyop. And this certainly had the feel of one. And yes, I've been in the house when we were, quote, occupied. We had our offices occupied and we had people beating on drums and things outside of our doors while we were trying to work. And frankly, it's not a big deal. Uh, I didn't see every second of video of what happened on January 6th. I'll preface it by saying that. I saw a few things. I saw some people acting up and misbehaving. Uh, I didn't see wholesale damage. It didn't look like Seattle or Portland when Antifa was done with it. That's for sure. Um, uh, we saw some people that were allowed in. Uh, and those people, strangely enough, some of those people are being charged with crimes, even though they simply walked into an open door in the Capitol. I was talking to my colleague, Adam, who I also worked with in Dr. Paul's office and works with us at the Ron Paul Institute. We were sort of speculating, you know, hey, if, if we had been there and the door was open, we probably would have walked in and looked around too. What's going on? And here you find yourself charged with a crime. Uh, so it is very strange. There were strange things going on. There were people there that seemed to have had affiliations with other organizations. We know this. We know the guy with the horns on his head was involved in things that were not sort of Trump uh, organizations. Uh, we know other people, the one fellow that was uh, egging people on was, I think, affiliated with the uh, Black Lives Matter group in Utah. So we don't know if it was a cookup. We don't know if it was a part cookup. But what I think we can say, and Patrick, you and I have studied this for a long time. We've studied color revolutions. We've we studied regime change. We've studied uh, coups overseas for a long time. The one thing that I can say, if we're watching this for probably 25 or 30 years. If this was a coup, it was the most harebrained, goofy coup I've ever seen in my life. In other words, it wasn't a coup. It was some people who went in there. Maybe a few of them did some things that they shouldn't. Of course, anyone who commits violence should be condemned and should be prosecuted. But um, it's a long way of saying the media is playing this as something that literally it was not. 
And Patrick, the proof is in the pudding because the people that are being charged are not being charged with uh, treason. They're not being charged with in incitement. They're not being charged with overthrowing the country. They're being charged with trespassing and damaging property and that sort of thing. So the the fallout from that, I mean, immediately you saw how the the, the talking points were formulated. It, it was insurrection, sedition, which interesting term to to use for that event. I mean, you spoke to this just earlier now, but uh, in a, a coup d'etat, um, very hyper hyperbolic. I mean, the, the hyperbole, it seems the hysteria, the hyperbole, this seems to be the norm right now, not just with this issue, but uh, we could talk about, you know, COVID as well, very hyperbolic and, and everything really during the Trump administration, right back to Russiagate. And it seems to, it, I thought things were going to get better, Daniel, uh, after Trump lost, I thought at least they might calm down. But what we're seeing is kind of the opposite. It, they seem to be ratcheting it up and really pushing uh, for, you know, full spectrum dominance politically. I and mean, what are your thoughts on on how this is increasing right now? Well, the worst thing to happen to these people is that they lost their enemy. They lost a horrible orange man. Uh, and that's the sort of their whole raison d'etre. So without him there, what do they do? They turn the guns inward toward the rest of us. But, you know, on this, this topic of coup and on the hy hyperbole, and that's a perfect word to use, it, it almost seems like they needed to have this to justify what was coming. So regardless, this was already baked into the cake, regardless of what was going to happen. But, you know, even a bad coup, uh, even a stupid coup, even a goofy coup, it does have certain components that this absolutely and utterly lacked. What was the ideology? What was the intention? What moves did they take toward that intention? Did they try to take over radio or TV? Did they try to broadcast from the Senate chamber? We are the government now. I'm President uh, Buffalo Head. You know, there was nothing, even an objective person who understands what a coup and insurrection is. There was literally, there were no components of a coup in what they did. Just doesn't justify, and I'm not trying to justify what happened, but I'm saying simply as someone who understands the components of a coup, it wasn't there. And uh, it, it, things increased a little bit uh, even beyond that. Uh, domestic terrorism, very, very quickly, that sort of line started rolling out. And they're talking about this, you know, we need a, this was a domestic 9-11. And I, I know it sounds ridiculous. And, you know, from, from a critical, uh, skeptical, level-headed political person would look at this and, and they know quite rightly this is crazed hysteria and hyperbole. But... I thought Russiagate was too, and yet half the country, it really it permeated, and people believe believe that official nerd, uh, conspiracy theory, if you will. And, and this one, it, it, in a way, kind of buries Russiagate. In, in a way, it's almost like they're trying to get off the hook for five years of what is, was effectively the biggest political hoax, uh, really, in, in, in U.S. history. Um, now it's domestic terrorism, Daniel. Fascism is also being bandied around. Uh, I, I, you know, what, what policy did Donald Trump have during his four years that was fascist? Um, it's, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to find exactly how that fits, but having 30,000 troops on this, on the streets in DC for an inauguration, <laughs> uh, deplatforming, censoring, uh, drawing up blacklists, that seems to be fascist behavior, uh, in a lot of people's books. I mean, <laughs> speak to uh, speak to this uh, new line of uh, attack. Well, what's funny is the actual definition of fascism, the actual fascism, the term, though you could see plenty of it in Trump's administration, the relationship with the military industrial complex, uh, his, his, his trade policy, his, uh, his closeness and tightness with, with companies. But of course, that's not, that's not what they mean when they say fascism. You know, they, they mean that he is out there with, an, you know, sort of a, a having a Nuremberg rally, whereas in fact, Kind of the, the inauguration looked a little bit like a Nuremberg rally, you know, eight million flags and, and the lights are going up and not a single person allowed. Uh, so it, it, it really it really found them. But I think, you know, the first part of your question, I actually think that the turning inward of the guns, I mean, I think I think the the Russiagate uh, set the stage. And I think what we're seeing now is the culmination of five years of Russiagate. Uh, you, you establish the fact that there are a whole group of people out there who don't have a different political perspective, who don't follow a person who you may personally find repulsive, but are actually in the service of a foreign power 
and enemies of the United States. It's very McCarthyite, as, as I'm sure you'd agree. But the culmination of that then is to turn the guns in toward them. And they're not just they're not just people in the service of Putin. They are actually physically violent people who will kill you if they get the chance. And this is what uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said in talk about hyperbole. Hmm. She was afraid that some of her Republican colleagues would turn her over to the mob to be killed. Come on. That's, it's, it's just such a joke. Uh, but you're right. The dead enders believe it. Hillary Clinton tweeted the other day that she wonders if if Trump was talking to Putin uh, while they were sacking the Capitol. You know, so she still believes this, you know, five, six, seven year old conspiracy theory as well. Yeah. And, and she's the progenitor, uh, largely the progenitor of that, uh, according to some of the declassified and, and le- the leaked memo, et cetera, with, uh, with the FBI. But the, it, the core issue, and, and I don't see this conversation happening, Daniel, and I want to get your comment on it. Why were the protesters there on the 6th? I mean, put aside that there was possibly a stand down order with Capitol Police, the National Guard weren't allowed to mobilize that's come out uh, for for politi- possibly for political reasons in the Pentagon. That's come out in the Washington Post just this morning. Um, so there's a lot of that. But put that aside, there was definitely a, a feeling by Trump supporters, by Republican voters nationwide, that somehow the election itself wasn't fair, or there were you know massive irregularities. I don't know if I can say election fraud on <laughs> YouTube. Don't you uh, we dare. Might, you know, get the channel pulled down. <laughs> that speaks to our topic of conversation today as well. We'll get to censorship in a minute. But no one wants to address that core question because that's isn't that a really important fundamental uh, part of the democracy, the constitutional republic? If you don't have faith in the electoral system, then you know if that's not addressed and not given a fair hearing, and I believe that's what uh, Senators Cruz and Hawley were attempting to get, a 10-day uh, uh, audit, uh, an investigation for a 10-day audit to have something on the record because uh, cases weren't being allowed to be heard in court for possibly for political reasons. But the, the media seems to want to avoid this and rush to the fascist insurrection narrative and not talk about the causes of it. But uh, go ahead. Well, the, the the new media message is shut up. You know, that's basically what it is. Oh, Hunter Biden, we found a laptop. Should we look into it? No, shut up. You can't even publish about it. Oh, we found Swalwell in bed with some uh, potential Chinese spy. Shut up. We're not going to talk about it. In fact, let's make him one of the impeachment managers just to put it in your face. Uh, the election looks, maybe it looks a little bit fishy. Uh, maybe there are some things about it that we should think about. Certainly in 2016, there are plenty of Democrats saying there was a lot of fraud going on and Hillary actually won. Well, that was okay back then. Uh, but if you say it now, shut up. Uh, you're potentially a domestic terrorist. And in fact, Patrick, we talked about this before we, we went live, but literally a few minutes before we started uh, this program, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, and we haven't heard much from them in a while, they issued a National Terrorism Advisory System Bulletin. It's the first time they've done this in a while. And in fact, they previously had done this about foreign terrorist threats in the U.S. But I don't want to, 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 to take too much time going over it, but it was really interesting because it talks about some ideologically motivated violent extremists with objections to the exercise of government authority, uh-oh, and the, and the presidential transition, as well as other perceived grievances. This is, this is interesting how they word this. Fueled by false narratives could continue to mobilize and incite. So if they do believe there's something wrong with the election, they're fueled by false mer- narratives and potentially terrorists. And it goes on to talk about domestic violent extremists are motivated by a range of issues, including anger over COVID-19 restrictions, the 2020 election results, the police use of force, et cetera. And it says they could be inspired by foreign terror groups. So if you're pissed off over the fact that your country has been shut down for the past year and you've lost your job and you can't go outside without a mask, you actually may be not a pissed off person, but a domestic violent terrorist. So that, that's, that's pretty much all dissent really uh on, on that list so you know it, the, the broad brush it, I, to say broad brush daniel this is beyond a broad brush i mean where are we at uh politically here um and you know is this the way i look at it daniel is possibly this is really when you drill down to it it's about uh centralized power maybe federal power versus everybody really the the states individuals a political opposition, 
the only difference is that there seems to be a real effort for one party dominance now. I've never heard rhetoric like this in my life. I don't, I don't know if you have, but um, uh, go ahead. No, no, you're right. I mean, I, I mean, I, I wasn't, of course, alive in the McCarthy era, as old as I may look. Uh, but, uh, but I can imagine it must have felt like that back then. Um, certainly, when I was you know, a youngster in the '80s, uh, you know, we, we, you know, it was the end of the Soviet era. But certainly, there was some of that, but not to this level, not to this idea. Of course, anyone who uses violence, uh, uh, certainly, it's already against the law. You already go to jail for it. But interesting about this, this Homeland Security alert. It says we, although we don't have any information about anything specific, uh, but let us generalize and say people out there that are like the COVID uh, restrictions, who don't like the elections, who are just ticked off over a bunch of stuff. Well, and it also has all of this stuff that we remember from the Obama and the Bush era. If you see something, say something. Turn in your neighbors. There's a big notice on the bottom. Turn people in. Call us up. So it, yeah, it really is. Uh, it really is very, very chilling. Just the, I, I've heard a lot of commentators uh, on CNN, MSNBC, they're equating, equating MAGA supporters, Trump supporters to Al-Qaeda, ISIS. Uh, Trump is there, Osama bin Laden, I believe one. I think that was Juliet Kayyem, former DHS uh, official in the Obama administration, a CNN national security expert, but uh, absolutely ridiculous. But this is um, demonizing the opposition marginalizing the opposition really what's the goal here is it to disenfranchise the opposition you know to full spectrum dominance politically or is the motivation to get them to do something violent you know maybe that's a conspiracy theory but there is nothing that would benefit this administration's intentions to consolidate power more than an actual january 6th and people actually doing something uh, that's more important than putting their desks, their feet on Nancy Pelosi's desk. So in a way, I mean, this reminds me a little bit, and you suggested this before we started talking, but it reminds me of the Shepard Nazi era in Georgia. And I lived overseas and I did elections over there, election monitoring. But every few months toward the end of Shepard Nazi's reign, when people were really getting ticked off at the corruption uh, and the tyranny, every few months he staged an assassination attempt. And it was almost comical. <laughs> while the pyrotechnics in his car almost blew up and he was able to get out there and arrest a few of the usual suspects and put them away. It sort of reminds you of this. You, we, they need this violence uh, you know, to continue ramping up against people and not only demonizing them, keeping them out of the, the, the real and virtual public square, but literally physically keeping them out of the square and putting them off you know, to Guantanamo somewhere. Yeah, so yeah, the Eastern Europe, uh, you spent time in Eastern Europe as well. So uh, a one-party state where the, the one party has full control of, let's say, the media and the public square. And I, I know you when you were in Europe, it was before social media. So the public square was literally the physical public square. Uh, and now you have a situation in the United States where one party, in a way, also uh, controls the social media public square. That's where everybody is having their discourse. This is where debate happens, where political activism, campaigning happens. And it's now becoming very tightly uh, regulated. I'm talking about Facebook, Twitter. You've had your experiences uh, with Twitter yeah. uh, as well. And and all, all these other platforms yeah. is what YouTube, obviously a lot of censorship going on. If you even mention or question the uh, election results in any way that somehow... Uh, against their terms of services and the Ron Paul Institute has been censored and attacked for, you know, basically uh, reporting uh, op-eds, things like this. Uh, so it, do you think this is, this portends to some transition in, in the U S politically? I mean, based on your knowledge of history. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the problem that a lot of conservatives in the U.S. have is they think that this is somehow some kind of liberal plot against conservatives, you know, and as usual, they get it wrong. It's not a liberal plot against conservatives, although conservatives often find themselves deplatformed. What this is, is a plot, if you want to call it that, a plot by the elites to radically narrow the acceptable level of discussion, the acceptable, the acceptable framework of discussion, the limits of discussion. And this affects progressives 
uh, probably as much or nearly as much as conservatives, uh, certainly affects libertarians, people who doubt the value of the state. So they, uh, the conservatives, of course, as usual, they, they misdiagnose the problem, but it is a big problem. And you know, you, you open by, by referencing uh, Central and Eastern Europe, the real success of communism, we're seeing it sort of in, <clears throat> and th I, this could be completely wrong, this is an observation that someone else made on Twitter, but there were a lot of people who uh, were censored on, on Facebook, and including the Ron Paul Institute and Ron Paul, who when they challenged it said, oh, sorry, it was a mistake. Uh, and that's perfectly acceptable, that may be a mistake, who knows what kind of robots and whatever are looking at it rather than real people, perfectly possible. But someone speculated that this is sort of a conditioning thing, that once you've said something and getting taken down and they say, well, it's a mistake, you might actually start moderating or tempering or thinking twice about posting or doing something. And quite frankly, uh, it affects me as well. Nobody wants to lose the audience. So the real success uh, of, of, of communism in terms of, of, of destroying any opposition to it, at least until uh, you know 60s or 70s, was self-censorship. You don't need to have a guy with a gun in your apartment making sure you don't tell your wife how much you hate the party because you get people to censor themselves. It's much more convenient. It's much easier to do. And I think that's the goal, uh, this restriction of political discourse, self-censorship, uh, get people to stop talking about it. Uh, and frankly, in Eastern Europe, what it resulted in was a massive increase in alcoholism and uh, depression and suicide well, let's look at the statistics in the United States this past year. They've all shot up, up, up. And uh, I want to take the liberty of pointing out an article uh, that was on, actually, it's on the Ron Paul Institute's uh, website. We'll take a look at, at that. Uh, this was by John Whitehead, uh, which you've published recently. The headline is uh, Enemies of the Deep State. The government's war on domestic terrorism uh, is a trap. And uh, in this uh piece, a very good article. I encourage people to go to the Ron Paul Institute's website uh, and then read this. But there's a quote here by Tulsi Gabbard, former congressman, Democrat congressman from Hawaii. And this is what she has to say. Uh, I believe this was also a statement she made on with Brian Kilmeade uh, on Fox News uh, recently. She said, this is an issue that all Democrats, Republicans, independents, libertarians should be extremely concerned about, especially because we don't have to guess about where this goes or how it ends. And she continues on this point. Uh, what characteristics are we looking for as we are building the profile of a potential, quote, extremist? Uh, what are we talking about? Religious extremists? Are we talking about Christians, evangelical Christians? Uh, what is a religious extremist? Is it somebody who is, quote, pro-life? And, you know, we, we talked to now some people in the mainstream media would say that's hyperbolic, uh, Daniel, for her to be making that point. But I think that's a perfectly uh, legitimate concern that she shares probably with quite a, millions of Americans right now. Um, but uh, just your thoughts on, on this. I mean, I, it's, it's really great to see someone like Tulsi Gabbard come out and she's <laughs> talk about someone. A, I think she was ripped off by her own party. But she's withstood a lot of slings and arrows because she takes it from both sides. Uh, but I would consider, I mean, I don't know, she doesn't fit into a neat, uh, you know, sort of box, but I would sort of consider her progressive libertarian-ish, uh, certainly defending uh, speech that she probably doesn't agree with. But she, you know, she was great on Fox. She was on the show you mentioned. She was on with Tucker Carlson. Uh, and she pointed out this inflammatory statement made by former CIA director and chief cook upper of the Russiagate scam, uh, John Brennan, uh, 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 talking about the uh, how the incoming administration, including the intelligence community, is 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 moving like a laser against these groups. And you might want to explain. Oh, you probably have a quote there, uh, Patrick. That's more more detail about what she said. Yeah, well, I, I don't have that particular quote to hand, but uh, I am familiar uh, with that. That's the former CIA director. Yeah, uh, he's not alone, by the way. Um, there, there's just some outrageous uh, things being said. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with this publication or not, Daniel, but uh, this is Bill Crystal's The Bulwark. Uh, <laughs> and there's just some really uh, crazy uh, rhetoric. Uh, this is the headline here, the GOP's pre-fascist DNA. And the author here, uh, this is very much a neocon website. It's dark money funded, lobbyist yeah. funded. So uh, he's... It, He's saying that the, the GOP is naturally 
predisposed to quote fascism and and really attacking uh josh hawley and here's one quote i mean there's so much in this but this says uh, social science suggests that the majority of trump voters are instinctive authoritarians uh, but one cannot separate trumpism from in the, the inherent character of the party which spawned him this is the most tame thing in this article <laughs> Daniel, because I didn't want to go too overboard with it, but this is the, the, I'm seeing so much of this. It's like a full court press right across the board. Well, what's hilarious about that, Patrick, is unless I got amnesia or I'm high or something, we spent the last four years with the Democrats and the left saying, you better listen to the intelligence community. All 17 agencies of the intelligence community have concluded, listen to the FBI, trust the FBI. And now, so now all of a sudden it's the Republican Party who has authoritarian tendencies or, or followers of Trump. Uh, you know, uh, we would probably say that both parties have authoritarian tendencies and both parties agree on more than on more than they disagree. This is about uh, this is about power, raw power and the exercise of raw power more than any ideological difference. They both love authority. They both crave authority because what they like more than anything, Patrick, is to put their boot in the faces of the rest of us, especially those of us who will not comply. I'm glad you used the word power, uh, Daniel, because that's a really good segue to where I wanted to go. This word power, I'm hearing it so much more often now than I, I, I would have, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, this uh, the peaceful transition of power. We're taking power. We're, Biden's assuming power. Um, maybe I'm getting my history wrong, but this wasn't always the tone, let's say, of politics. Uh, in America, it's as if all the power is centralized at the, you know, executive or at the federal government, and that's all that matters, really. But I mean, have you noticed this as well? And and that does harken back to kind of Soviet-style language, Lenin the exor- and Trotsky. Yeah, the exercise of power, exactly. And you know, as you know, I'm I'm, I'm not a Trump voter. You know, I I'm objective. I'm actually I I think voting is not the the greatest use of time or resources, but. But, you know, what a dope Trump was when he took over, when he got power. What did he do? He left all these idiotic retreads from the Obama administration in the second and third tier of all these uh, of all these agencies in the administration. And then he shocked that they worked against him from day one to undermine him and destroy him. This is something that I'll tell you that Biden understands and Obama understood. And more importantly, the people around them who may or may not be actually pulling the strings, because I don't know how many strings Biden has to pull. Uh, these are the people who understand power, and they hit the ground running. I, I would bet that there is not a single Trump ambassador you know, to Burkina Faso or somewhere you can't even find who wasn't given a pink slip uh, the second the transition uh, took place. So these people understand how to wield power. Uh, they understand it very well, and they're damn well going to wield it. So, so we've gone from just in a month, we've gone to, from uh, double standards to uh, now community standards with social media censorship. We've gone from deplatforming to deprogramming. I'm hearing this word deprogramming uh, in the media. Trump supporters need to be hunted down. They need to be questioned. The military needs to be purged as well. And so this, uh, the, 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 the accusations of fascism seem to be uh, coming from the... Uh, in, in classic Leninist style, yeah, coming yeah. from the, the accusers himself, but uh, that's pretty shocking. I mean, have, have you ever have we ever seen anything like that? Military purges, military purges, deprogramming. It really, you're right. I mean, you hit on Lenin. I mean, it's absolutely the especially the early part of the Soviet Union. You know, the initial period, the Lenin period up till 24. I mean, you have you have this this sort of every Trump supporter is in a cult. And actually not only in a cult, but has mental illness. So people that are in a cult, that are programmed, it's a kind of form of mental illness. So you have to be sent to a re-education camp, you know, certainly was back then. And here they're calling for the same thing now, uh, send these people to re-education camps. Now, there are a lot of things that Trump supporters believe that I think are pretty dumb and pretty wacky. Uh, But the idea that they have a mental illness, uh, some of them probably do. You know, anyone addicted to politics, I think to a degree, has mental illness. But but the whole idea that you take your enemies and you camp them, you put them in a camp, you give them, you know, psychiatric treatment. This is something from some pretty dark periods of history from both the commies and the Nazis. And uh, do we really want to go back to that? Yeah, they're, they're really taking a leaf out of the uh, Soviet. I mean, people from the Soviet Union that I know, I was speaking to a Russian journalist 
based in Moscow, Dmitry Babich, yeah. and he grew up uh, in this period. And he said, "This is exactly, this <clears throat> is exactly. You know, you get attacked, demoralized. They say there's something wrong with you. Uh, you're mentally ill if you protest against anything that the the, the government or the party is doing." So that that was par for the course growing up for him uh, in the seventies. Uh, in eighties in, in Soviet Union in Russia, uh, and now he's, they're they're kind of shocked to see this going on in the U.S. and saying, "Don't you guys read your history books?" Um, yeah. So, but but luckily, uh, there does seem to be. I don't know how significant this is, Daniel. You might be able to comment. But some of the more uh, traditionally left wing uh, advocacy groups, uh, civil liberties groups, have uh, pushed back. This is the leadership conference uh, on on civil and human rights. And they drafted a letter, uh, which is interesting. They're basically saying that uh, these these new powers, new statutes for domestic terrorism should not be granted uh, to the government, that they already have things on the books to deal with this. Uh, That's an argument that you made early on in this segment here. And this is really a a collection. This is the full rainbow coalition here. Uh, The Arab American Institute, uh, Ben the Ark, Jewish Action, Muslim Advocates, uh, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, they've all signed on basically saying that uh, these if there's 50 federal statutes already in existence to investigate and prosecute individuals who participated in, of course, they're calling it an insurrection here, so they're still using the word. But I even think uh, one of the members of the squad, uh, uh, Rashida Tlaib, she's against it as well. Um, so do you think there's going to be possibly some you know, uh, pushback uh, from the left, uh, the the old left, if it's still around. And progressives, the Glenn Greenwald has been, you know, terrific on this, uh, you know, as have people like Matt Taibbi and others. So I think we have some allies, probably more than we had during the Trump era, who are concerned about this. And I think that's a good thing. And I hope it's something we can build on. But, you know, I wanted to mention something that you that you uh, ended with before you made that last point about the Soviet Union. You know, what's interesting is one of my one of my greatest friends, uh, he was uh, he was in Hungary and he escaped Hungary in 1956, uh, and he was not allowed to go to university because his father had a title under the previous uh, under the previous monarch. So he was not allowed to go to university. And I, you probably follow Jonathan Turley, who I think is terrific when it comes to First Amendment and many other things. But Turley's written several things about universities, Harvard University, other universities, who want to actually take away your degree. <laughs> if you were a Trump supporter or kick you out if you're a Trump supporter. So as extreme as I always viewed it, what, that my friend was not allowed to go to school because his dad was a Kulak. Uh, now I, I, I find that these same people are calling for the same thing here. Uh, you know, and unfortunately, you know, Patrick, I don't think Americans know history very well. Uh, too many of them go to public school maybe, but wow. I mean, I guess that, you know, the Santiana, if you're condemned to repeat it, I guess that's where we are. Yeah, that's pretty disturbing. I think someone made the comment, if if they're going to strip uh, Ted Cruz's Harvard degree, then they want to give him his tuition back as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Some plus interest from the student <laughs> loans. Exactly. Um, so fair is, fair, turnabout's fair play there. Yeah. But uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, I, I mean, this was probably the most outrageous thing I heard. Uh, he compared the events of January 6th to the uh, 1938, the Kristallnacht, uh, where the Germans... Um, attacked uh, the Jewish communities and and destroyed their property in this, and and again Dmitry Babich from Moscow made the 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 comment to this Schwarzenegger statement. He said the the Kristallnacht. You don't have to look any further than what happened in Kiev in February of 2014. I mean, literally, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, he's a supposed to be a conservative, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Not that he's a major political figure, but. Um, that comment is just typical of how uh, over the top things are right now. I just wonder if, you know, he's getting up there in years. Maybe he was confused. Maybe he was watching video from Portland where Antifa went in and burned up the black neighborhoods, you know, and ruined black owned businesses. Maybe, that was more like the crystal knocked than some dude putting his feet up on Pelosi's chair or maybe stealing a podium or something. So maybe he was just a little bit confused over there. Too many steroids or something. Yeah, too many cigars, I, I think. So the, the other thing I wanted to get your comment on, and this is really important, the the way the language is being handled, um, the, we're hearing that the, the term nationalism has been expanded to white nationalism and used ubiquitously in media and, and mainstream liberal discourse. And then that's that's been attached to white supremacy. 
So you've gone from nationalism to white supremacy and then add racism on top of that salad for uh, as a bit of Tabasco sauce. Yeah. And and really it's it's demonizing nationalism. So my question, Daniel, is is that to uh, not just to attack the political opposition, but any policies that are nationalist policies? Because uh, definitely you could say that a lot of the Trump policies were, quote, nationalist in nature. And that's and nationalism is a real worldview uh, versus, let's say, globalism. That's a real conversation that's happening in the world. But it's yeah. being kind of given the Nazi branding uh, by the media right now. But, you know, what do you think about this? Yeah, the whole evolution uh, or devolution, I guess, to the whole thing into white nationalism is dangerous and scary. I mean, how, how many white nationalists do, do we really have? I mean, how many do we know? We just found out today that the leader of Proud Boys was actually a police informant, you know, probably stirring him up. I, I just don't see it. But the problem is, and this is like, this is going back to Lenin, the worse, the better. The problem is there aren't really any white nationalists. There aren't any white racists in the U.S. that are really dangerous in any way other than some goofy guy who knows, sitting in front of his computer. Uh, so you, you have to sort of, I think, develop these if you want to be, you know, if you want to look at it that way. And I think some of the things we're seeing from the early part of the, of the Biden administration, uh, where he talked about our exclusive focus is going to be on whatever it is, uh, will develop sort of some negative attitudes. And I think that's just what they want. But this conflation of nationalism, which is a word, it's, it's, it, it is an unpleasant word in some ways, with white nationalism, Really, I think you're right. I don't think it's an accident. I think people, uh, you know, uh, uh, have nationalistic feelings. I certainly disagreed with uh, with Trump's uh, pursuit of nationalism and trade policy and other and other things. I think it's sort of an empty sloganistic. But I think it is very convenient to take those steps over so you can more easily demonize people. Yeah, and we did hear <clears throat> similar rhetoric. Funny enough, uh, very similar out of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab. Uh, you know, and other 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 of these globalist luminaries, let's say, uh, they're you know decrying this as a problem, and America's too inward looking. I mean, you've had a lot of accusations of uh, Ron Paul over the years. Uh, his non-interventionist uh, stance has has always been uh, characterized in the mainstream media as isolationist, <laughs> and that's somehow akin to nationalism. You, you've seen this before, and, and and it seems like in that case, it was definitely. Uh, they were attacking the policy uh, because if you're not interventionist, then you're not, you know, for you're not going to help grow the military industrial complex or or, or control markets overseas. But um, so you you have experience in this uh, this realm, actually. Yeah, it's true. And, and, and uh, unfortunately, the name is escaping me now. But there was a famous time when Dr. Paul was on television. I forget if it was CNN or what, what have you. But I think the debate was whether or not we need to go. Uh, into Iraq. Uh, and the fact that Dr. Paul was opposed to Iraq and is opposed to all interventions, he was accused by, it was actually a right winger this time, uh, and I, you'll remember who it is, actually the guy who played in Ferris Bueller, uh, the famous uh, right wing guy, but he accused Dr. Paul of being anti-Semitic for not wanting to go into Iraq. And so there is those accusations that maybe it's a misinterpretation, maybe it's purposeful, that non-interventionists somehow have uh, evil motives, but of course the right-wingers hated non-interventionists because it takes away their ability to invade in other countries, and the left-wingers, the humanitarian interventionists, hate them because it takes away their ability to go reshape uh, societies uh, as they wish. So we sort of we get it uh, coming and going. And uh, you know, just to just to round things off a little bit, you know, what are your what are your thoughts right now um, about this this new administration? I mean. This is a separate topic, but it is related. Uh, Rand Paul uh, made a, a stand uh, on the floor uh, today, uh, a point of order. It was defeated, but uh, in terms of the impeachment uh, in the Senate. But he did have 45 senators that agreed with him that uh, the impeachment uh, after the fact, as it were, of President Trump would be unconstitutional. So if you take those as solid votes of support, um, there's not going to be the number of votes required to to convict the president uh, afterwards. I mean, how, how do you think of uh, this circus right now, the second impeachment after uh, he's left office? Yeah, it's pretty remarkable, isn't it? What I think is happening is I think some uh, some senators are pushing the panic button, especially Democrat senators. Right now, they realize they don't have the votes. They don't have anything near the votes. The last thing they want to see 
is this trial drag on for weeks and weeks uh, and, and with no outcome. So this is another example of Pelosi and crew who, of course, didn't have any witnesses this time around. It was a snap impeachment, uh, really getting way far ahead of reality. And now, basically, I mean, what I see happening is the Democrat senators being hung out to dry with America saying, what the heck are you doing? Not understanding that the real goal of this second impeachment is to have a conviction and to bar the president from ever, ex-president, of course, from ever holding office again, which is in the Constitution. And Jonathan Turley makes a point much better than I could because he's a professor of constitutional law. But the framers, when they put these two together, uh, uh, explaining how impeachment works, the, the, the preventing, the barring from future office was not on an equal level with removal from office. It was a subset because it was clear when it said that senators also, after they remove from office, they also may wish to bar from future office. So that means it's a subset of the original. The, the Democrats wanted to put the two of them together as equals, saying, okay, he's out of office, that's fine. But if we convict, we automatically get this second one, which is to bar him from future office, which is what I think they really want. Um, I think we had a show yesterday. It was uh, Dr. Paul came up with the part of the title that said, when is the backfire coming? And I think that's what's going to happen pretty soon. I mean, wouldn't it, uh, to, to have a proper impeachment trial in the Senate, wouldn't you need uh, Chief Justice John Roberts presiding over it? Is that going to happen or not? <laughs> and Roberts said there's, he's not president anymore. You know, what, are, are you guys high? I'm not, you know, I'm not going to do this. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty funny. So you have poor old Leahy. Uh, here he is. He's not a young man. In fact, last night he had to go to the hospital. He's probably panicking about this whole ridiculous thing. He probably pulled the shortest straw. But uh, here he is. Uh, they're going to have Leahy in its place. The whole thing is literally falling apart. It's collapsing. It's going to end up being a laughing stock. And uh, who knows what may happen in two years in midterm elections. I mean, beyond keeping Trump from running for office again, as you said, um, do you think there's also the, a, a wider motivation, which is they want to destroy the memory of Donald Trump. They want to crush Trumpism. And in a way, again, they've done nothing really. Uh, I'm talking about the Democrats who have been in control of the House for the last four years. They haven't done anything but really go after Trump. Uh, so they haven't really advanced any uh, domestic policies of note. They haven't debated or argued or raised any major uh, uh, points of, of, of debate and discussion on anything. Uh, but so are they stuck in a kind of anti-Trump <laughs> mode? And they, it's it's that's four four years is a long time, Daniel, to, you know, it becomes muscle memory politically. What do you yeah. think? That's a that? great word. That's a great word. That's absolutely right. It becomes muscle memory. And so they're now incapable of talking about policies. You know, and we were we were hoping they'd come with us on some of the things we criticized Trump for in terms of his policy. But no, they wanted to talk about his fascism, his orange hair, his his wife sounds awfully foreign. Uh, you know, all of these particularly ridiculously inane things rather than his real policy failures and real boneheaded moves. Uh, so, yeah, that's exactly a muscle memory. Now they don't know what the heck to do. And do, do you think that uh, the Biden administration is going to continue uh, being hawkish with Russia? Certainly, that's what it sort of looks like. But yet they're uh, wanting to get back into long-term agreements like the START Treaty, missile treaties, and so forth, uh, but still wanting to have a kind of aggressive front, you know, ag against Russia. Uh, is there any chance that they could reset relations with Russia? Well, they're all Obama retreads. Let's not forget that. So basically, this is Obama 2.0, or 3.0, I guess, the third term of Obama when it comes to U.S. foreign policy. But I don't think they have the leeway that the Obama administration had to do things overseas. Uh, and I forget who it was. We put up a piece on Iran today. Uh, but what's he going to do in Iran? Uh, Iran is very clear. We are not going to go back and renegotiate the JCPOA. We're not going to give up ballistic missiles uh, you know, retroactively. We're not going to do this. We're not going to change the terms. So what do they do? Um, is Russia going to sit by while the U.S. Uh, invades Syria or starts arming jihadists again? Uh, I have a hard time understanding that they would do that. Are they going to put more troops in Afghanistan? So I think they are itching. They're eager. They want to flex their muscles. But I don't know. That the, 
the world has changed a lot since the Obama administration. It really has. And sort of the mask has come off U.S. foreign policy. We're not here to liberate you. We're here to burn down and blow up your country. And so I just don't see, I don't see the, the, the landscape for a Obama 3.0 foreign policy. I think they're going to try, but I don't think it's going to turn out how they expect. Do you think there's also a, a, a competency deficit, uh, a little overconfident, maybe um, overestimating the achievements of people like Michael McFowl, Victoria Newland? I mean, the, I wouldn't call that a success, the dismemberment of the Ukraine into three parts. Uh, the, you know, it's been a disaster for Ukrainians. And, and really, the U.S., the Obama administration was the driving force uh, behind all that. Um, and so, they're, but they're still being cycled back in, Daniel. So, uh, Samantha Power, Susan Rice, a lot of the same characters you'll see in the administration, they are vaunted as kind of, you know, real luminaries, uh, in DC, the adults in the room, as the media are calling them right now, uh, looking after us, the kids, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, is it, I don't think there's, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm a believer that responsibility to protect is a kind of an it's become an inbred political ideology. Uh, it's really neoconservatism rebranded. Yeah. Um, it, it doesn't it's not seen to work, but they haven't come up with anything or made any speeches or said anything that seems any different. Are we going to see a reboot of the kind of Obama Clinton uh, doctrine? Yeah, I mean, R2P is a relatively new doctrine. It's what 2005 or 2006, I think it was. So it's, it's, it's relatively new. And unfortunately, the UN for all of its faults was designed to be a forum of nations, of countries, of states. R2P really more than anything else undermined that and said, well, you actually lose your sovereignty as a state if enough people with enough influence can bribe or do whatever they wish to say that you've done it. And they did it with, uh, with Libya. They said what he's done, the atrocities are so bad, he's lost his ability. Uh, Libya has lost its status as a sovereign state. Uh, very, very, very dangerous stuff. But what have these people left in their wake? They basically left the world a series of gaping open wounds, uh, bleeding open wounds. What problem have they solved? You're right about Ukraine. We don't talk about it a lot, but is it solved? Is it fixed? No. Is Libya fixed? No. Is Syria fixed? Is the whole ridiculous cookup called Arab Spring, is that fixed? That was that was Hillary's plan. That was a big soft power plan. Arab Spring, we're going to bring democracy. Is it fixed? No, it's an open wound. And that's all they can do. Just like the neocons who are their ideological cousins, all they can do is destroy they cannot build. They don't have the capacity to build because they because it's impossible. It's impossible to reshape other societies that you don't even understand. It's so ridiculously hubristic. Yeah, I could say the same domestically about it's easier to tear things down uh, instead <clears throat> of building things. I don't want to uh, point out any uh, fingers there, but <laughs> we're also seeing that domestically. The last thing, uh, we'll wrap it up. Uh, it's been a great discussion, Daniel. And uh, But the, you, what your message is at the Ron Paul Institute, the what Dr. Paul's mission has been for a long time is the message of, of liberty, uh, of self-responsibility. Those things, looking at the cycles of politics and the, the current trajectory of where we're at now in America, uh, is and, and really when Ron Paul's message blossomed uh, was when some of these uh, tumultuous things were happening, you know, 10 years ago, uh, 15 years ago. Do you think this is a, an, also an opportunity to re reboot your message uh, at, at the Ron Paul Institute? Absolutely. And as depressed as I may feel over these crackdowns that we've discussed over the past hour, maybe I'll swing down a whiskey bottle after this conversation, because it is a little bit depressing. But as, as upsetting as that is, I do feel a great sense of optimism that this is a great opportunity for us to present the message that a peaceful foreign policy, a non-interventionist domestic policy, respect uh, the golden rule, government shouldn't be allowed to do what it, what it forbids the population from doing all of these things uh, and how they bring prosperity, moral and physical prosperity to a society, we have a tremendous opportunity to make that case. And as Dr. Paul often says, we're only hobbled by the fact that we are flawed as communicators, you know, uh, we have our flaws and it's going to be difficult because 
and we have literally all the power that's out there against us, but still we are optimistic because it is right, Patrick, it is a great opportunity to make the case for non-interventionism, peace, and prosperity. And also things like free speech and free press, these are becoming big issues. I know you've advocated on this uh, over the years, really strongly campaigned for it as well. So this is just going to be more and more relevant now uh, in terms of the U.S. conversation. So uh, we, uh, anyway, I want to applaud you uh, and, and Dr. Paul and the work that you're doing uh, at the Institute. And uh, yeah, I hope we're going to hear more from you. You guys have been right. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to say this. I went back and looked at some of the fact checkers like PolitiFact, how they attacked you. And Dr. Paul, uh, early on in this in the year with the COVID crisis, um, attacking for things that have actually come turned out to be true. But they haven't gone back to correct the fact check articles, Daniel. This is the problem. They just sit there on the Internet uh, despite despite the evidence that has changed as well. So the fact checkers, that's another another conversation altogether. But um, thank you very much. And uh, also want to direct people to uh, the Ron Paul Institute, uh, your website uh, as well, some great articles. And is your daily show or your news program, is it going still live uh, on YouTube? Yeah, it's live on YouTube at noon Eastern time. Uh, we also have the other places we post it. We post it on BitChute. We post it on Library. So if, if something does happen, you can still watch the show. Okay. Well, we want to thank you very much uh, again for joining us at 21 Wire Live. All the best. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks for having me on. Daniel McAdams uh, from the Ron Paul Institute. Uh, fantastic conversation. I mean, there's a number of segues there, jump off points on a number of other topics. We'd like to expand on those. Perhaps we'll do that this, uh, this Sunday uh, on the Sunday Wire at 21st Century Wire. You can listen live. Uh, that'll be going out live at, uh, I believe, uh, 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 5 p.m. UK time. Uh, so join us at the Sunday Wire uh, as well. And uh, go to 21stCenturyWire.com for more news, views, and analysis. Uh, again, I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. Thank you very much for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next time. Take care. <laughs>